If you could, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 is our text, and we're going to be provided my voice sustains itself. It's on the brink of failing. But we're going to be looking again at the seven sermons from the cross, and we're going to see the salvation is grace. And we sang about it this morning. We sang about two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. Robbers. And did you know that tradition holds that the name of the unrepentant thief was Gastus? And the name of the repentant thief, he went by three different names, or legend goes by different names, Dismas, Demas, and Democus. And you have one legend that says that Dismas, this is the repentant thief, was a Judean Robin Hood who robbed the rich and gave to the poor. Then you've got another legend that's even maybe more noble that tells about when Jesus was traveling when he was a little baby from Bethlehem to Egypt when they were fleeing Joseph, Mary, and their baby, or young Jesus. When they were fleeing to Egypt, they were attacked by robbers. And there was in this band of brigands, the youngest member, who couldn't bear to lay a hand on the lovely child of Jesus, and he freed him, saying these words, this is the legend, O most blessed of children, if ever there come a time for having mercy on me, then remember me and forget not this hour. That legend, that young robber, his name was Dismas, supposedly the repentant thief on this cross. Well, that really hardly captures the character that we see from either one of these thieves that were on these crosses. They were hurling profanities at Jesus, hardly the noble Robin Hoodian type of person. They're reviling Jesus. They're on the cross. Listen, by this is what the nicknames, or this is what the Romans nicknamed the cross. It was the unfriendly, the unlucky tree. And they're on this cross, they're on their crosses and they're hurling profanities at Jesus. And Matthew tells us there's one on either side of Jesus. And it's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy made hundreds of years previously. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And we're not told the reason why these two were being crucified. But Luke uses a word that means lawbreaker. He calls them criminals. Matthew and Mark in their Gospels, they use a word that means bandit or revolutionary. But we do know this, they're both cursing, they're both reviling Jesus. And the text says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's goading Jesus. He's mocking him. He's saying, listen, if you're the Messiah... Supposedly, everybody's talking about it. If you're really the Messiah, then just save us all. He's not expressing faith in Jesus. He's pouring out his hatred for him. Listen, these were Jews. Or at least we know they're not Romans because you don't, Rome didn't crucify Roman citizens. That's why the Apostle Paul was beheaded, not crucified. You don't crucify Roman citizens. And they knew their Jewish beliefs. 
They knew about the Messiah that was to come. So here's this scene on this terrible Friday morning. Sometime, we know this, it's sometime between 9 a.m. and noon. And soldiers are mocking Jesus. The chief priests, the Greek says, were thumbing their noses at Jesus. The crowd taunting Jesus. And now these two fellow victims, one on either side, were cursing at him. And suddenly, suddenly, in the midst of all this bedlam, all of this chaos, all of this pain and humiliation, all of a sudden, grace explodes in an incredible display of saving faith. And what we're going to see is this, and I'm going to hopefully put us into the scene because you can't just come to church and sit there statically with your minds in neutral. You can't, and nothing works right if you do that. If you want God to transform you through the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, you've got to interact. You've got to engage. Just like you do in your own quiet time and your devotions. If you're just reading the Bible because you think your day is going to go better, because you're supposed to, it's a habit. Nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to happen in your life. You've got to engage. I'm hopefully going to put us into this scene. And what we're going to see first is that this thief that repents gives us an unbelievably improbable faith. Here's what the text says. But the other rebuked him. But the other rebuked him. You've got one thief reviling Christ... But, that's really a great word, it's a contrast word in Scripture. Some of the most powerful verses of Scripture hang on the hinge of the but. But the other rebuked him. So we learn from Luke only that one of the two criminals has grown strangely silent and then he begins to rebuke the other one for mocking Jesus. He has a change of heart. Now listen, this is key. He has a change of heart. On the cross. He shows a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. He demonstrates faith. Friends, I've got to tell you, and I'm at least I think this is right. And if you think if you don't think this is right, that's fine. You gotta come up and maybe show me a better example. But I don't know if there's any better example of an unlikely conversion anywhere in all of Scripture than what we're seeing today. This is the most improbable evidence of faith I think there could be possibly located in Scripture. Maybe second to this, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. But I think this beats it out. And maybe you'll agree with me when I start putting you into this a little bit more. The person that this thief puts his faith in is dying. And to every possible appearance, he's failed. He puts his faith in what seems to be a failure. Listen, from outward appearances, friends, there's just no reason that this thief would put his faith in Jesus. I mean, what savior wears a crown of thorns jammed onto his bleeding head? What savior gets murdered? I mean, how can someone save anybody if they're dead? There is nothing outwardly that is convincing here. 
that gives us a rational explanation for the reason for this sudden faith. In fact, everything, everything shouts to the contrary. Jesus is a fraud. He's a failure. He's a charlatan. That's what it looks like. I mean, you've got the priests. They're shouting, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You've got the soldiers shouting, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. You've got one of the criminals shouting, save yourself and us. It doesn't look like Jesus can save anybody. This is an airtight case. He can't save anyone, even himself. Yet somehow in the midst of all of this, miraculously, the criminal's heart bursts into faith. It's clearly, undeniably, a work of our sovereign God's grace. But maybe, maybe you're not yet convinced. No, I think you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I think if you try hard enough, you could just muster the faith on your own and put him in Christ. That was the great controversy in the early church between Arminius and Augustine. Friends, nothing miraculous, nothing miraculous had even occurred on that day. The noon darkness hadn't yet come. The 3 p.m. earthquake was hours of suffering from happening. He'll never, this thief will never even know that the temple curtain mysteriously rips from top to bottom. His faith comes into being before the centurion and the soldiers confess Christ. Listen, he saw no dove descend on Jesus. He heard no voice thunder from the heavens. No angel appeared, but he had even more that should have made faith impossible. Now listen to this. He came to faith in the midst of agonizing suffering. He had hours to go. Friends, he wasn't going to die until finally, mercifully, unusually, a Roman soldier was either going to bring a sledgehammer or an iron bar and break his legs in a procedure called crucifracture. Because once you break your legs, you can't push up. And once you can't push up on the cross, you can't exhale, and you're going to die of asphyxiation in minutes. He's in the midst of suffering. And somehow faith explodes into his heart. Friends, the answer is this. His faith was a gift given to him by a God who loves him. Isn't that what Scripture says in Ephesians? For by grace, by the way, grace means if you could do it, it wouldn't be grace. If you deserved it, it can't be grace. It's undeserving. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift. It is a gift of God. If this thief is not clear evidence that faith is a gift of God, friends, I don't know what is. Salvation's always a miracle of grace. It's always a gift from God. And it's always given to undeserving thieves and robbers. Listen, take a moment and think on this for a second. Do you understand what hope this gives you? How many of you, show me your hands, have a loved one that is still not yet willing to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see what hope this gives you? 
You don't have to find the right words to finally unlock their faith. Just pray. You've got a God who loves and a God who can open eyes and a God who by grace can give faith. You know, a few years ago, and I have permission to share this, Sandy Mahorsky asked me if I would visit her father in the hospital. I'd never met her father. He hadn't set foot in a church for over 47 years. Do you know what it's like when a pastor's asked to go visit somebody who's not set foot in church for 47 years? There may be a reason they're not in church. And I might not be that welcome. So I actually drove to the hospital praying, Lord, I've been kicked out of a hospital room once by our beloved Ken Christensen, whose hand is so proudly raised. It was kind of a funny story. I wish I had time to tell you. And I wondered if I was going to get kicked out again. Well, he let me come in. And Bill and I, we talked, we shared stories from his life, which eventually, eventually turned to questions that I asked him about faith in Jesus Christ. And I explained to him the gospel of hope. And to my amazement, listen, to my amazement, after I explained to him the gospel, to my amazement and my astonishment, nothing happened. I'm sitting there talking to him going, wow, I'm doing really pretty good. This has got to be one of my best presentations. This guy's toast. He's coming to the kingdom. Nothing. He wasn't even interested. I went home and I'm praying for him. A couple months later, he's admitted back into the hospital. Two or three o'clock in the morning, the doctors and the nurses are bringing paperwork to him. They're asking him to sign it because they don't know if he's going to make it through the night. Well, he made it. And then Sandy told him that a friend of hers who was not aware of what was happening to her father, woke up at the same exact time and began praying for him. And when he learned this, he said, there must be something to God. Sandy, would you ask your pastor if he would come back in and talk to me? So I did, and I'll never forget it. 7.30, Sunday evening, Easton Hospital. I walk in there and there's a gentleman in the next bed in this room and he's got family all around him, commotion. And I've just come through a cold. My right ear is just plugged up. I can't hear. I'm praying, Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen, but do you remember my really slick presentation of the gospel? That one didn't work. So you've got to do something on this at this time. And we talked, you know, I really, really enjoyed talking to Bill. He had so many stories. And after a while, I asked him, Bill, you wanted me to come visit you. Do, you. do you want to know how a person can have eternal life? And he didn't even think about it. He said, yes, I do. And I said, well, do you, do you know how to have eternal life? And he said, well, I think it's by doing good things to people and living a good life. And so I read to him the same passage you're seeing up here, the same exact part of Scripture. And he said, I never, I've never seen that before. I never heard that before. So I explained to him what the Bible says about salvation. And I asked him, Bill, are you ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ? And without even hesitating, he says, yes. 
You know, I didn't think I heard him right. I told you my ear was plugged up, so I said, really? I'm the worst pastor, seriously. I should give you hope. If God can use me, he can use any of us. I said, really? I didn't think, he said, yes, again, I don't think, I, I thought maybe I didn't explain him right, so I did it again. I explained the gospel again. And again, he says, yes. And right there in Easton Hospital, Bill Gaston received forgiveness from our merciful God. God's grace, not Pastor Tim, believe me, I exhibited no skill in this. God's grace opened Bill's eyes to the offer of salvation. And as we return to this thief, what else could it have been but the grace of God? And then we remember from last week, remember that prayer that Jesus is saying over and over, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do and all of a sudden grace explodes from the cross. Mercy ripples out like a seismic wave and the nearest one to him, this thief, is the first one whose heart is open, his eyes are open, and all of a sudden he sees his condition. And he demonstrates saving faith. And that's what we see next. Sure, it was improbable. But now we're going to see what saving faith really is. You know, it's easy. It's really easy to read this account of the crucifixion from a spectator's perspective. But I want to get you into the story. Listen, you're not a spectator anymore. Try to put you in this. You're taught this as a little child. Remember when your imagination was so full and your mom or your dad would read you those stories and you felt like you were in the story and you felt the grip of fear when it came to a scary part and the excitement when they were rescued. You remember all that, right? Well, you can still do it, adults. Get into the story. You're one of the thieves. And you had nails put through your wrist as well, crushing your nerves so that your fingers curled in. That's what happens. I showed you a picture three weeks ago. Your, ner- your fingers are claw-like. And you've got, sometimes, by the way, they put your feet on either side of the cross, but it appears that they put one foot over the other at that time and put a spike, a nail spike, right through your feet, impaling you literally to the cross. And sometimes, sometimes in, in this case, you've got the patibulum that goes horizontal, the stipes that goes vertical, and you're hung up on that. And sometimes it was a T-shaped cross, and sometimes it was a small T-shaped cross so that they could put the sign up over your head. That's the cross that they're using this time. Sometimes in the T-shape, capital T, they nail the cross through your feet, or they nail the sign through your feet. But it looks like the sign's up over their heads at this time, and you're up on the cross, and you can't breathe. Yeah, you can inhale, you can't exhale, until you push and pull. Pull with your wrists and push with your feet, so that way you can get air out of your lungs. And it's agonizing. It's brutal. You've got spikes of pain flying through your nerve system. You've got nausea. That's why crucified victims, all they do is gasp. They don't breathe deep. You know how extraordinary, extraordinary it was to have these two thieves railing at Jesus and then rebuking one another? You've got you've to push up in order to get air out of your vocal cords, in order to speak and enunciate words. It's agonizing. And you're on the cross. And listen, you're one of the thieves 
And across from Jesus, I'm the other one. And you might recoil at what I just said, that you're one of the thieves. Now listen, look at me for a second, because you've got to be able to receive this with grace. You are a thief. You are a thief, and I am as well. Pastor Tim, I don't like that. The truth is, we're all career thieves. There's no one innocent on that skull hill, and you're not innocent either. Listen, who gave you your talents? Who gave you breath? And who gave you life? Who gave you your family? Who gave you your skills and the gifts? Who gave you your money? You think all of that came at your own effort? God's the one who's the giver of all good things. God's the giver. And how often have we lived for our own glory and robbed God? The other day I had this little insidious, whispery thought go through my mind as something that was appearing to be pretty successful. And I thought, wow, I can't believe I was able to do that. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God zeroed in and cut me to the heart and says, why are you not giving me credit? Why'd you rob me? We're all robbers. And we're all thieves. And we should have been and would have been up on that cross. And we're either, listen, listen, we're all in this. You're either the repentant thief or you're the unrepentant one. You're either one of them. If you've come to Christ, you're the repentant thief. If you've not come to Christ, you're the unrepentant one. And as the repentant one rebukes the other, we all of a sudden see a clear display of faith emerging. And here's what it is, and this is the path for all of us on our way to repentance. Saving faith opens your eyes to judgment. Listen, when you've got saving faith that's beginning to explode in your heart, what you see is judgment of God. Do you not fear God, the repentant Thief says, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, saving faith begins with a fear of God. It's a heightened awareness that God holds the power to condemn you to hell or to give you eternal life. Somebody here, I am sure, is thinking in in their mind, no, no. Saving faith begins by seeing the love of God. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And some people, they clip and save, meaning they cut out any, any mention of God's wrath, any mention of hell, thinking that if you talk about hell to the unbeliever, they're going to turn away from God. It's got to be grace. It's got to be love. It's got to be kindness. It's all I want to present. But friends, listen, just think through this. The good news of the gospel looks so good because the bad news looks so bad. I mean, how often have you gone out on a black night to watch those iridescent stars and be amazed? What jeweler puts diamonds against a white backdrop? What brings out the luster of the diamond? It's its contrast. This is the gospel. And if you don't have both halves to your gospel presentation, you don't have the gospel. 
It's against the backdrop of God's judgment that that the grace of God does look so kind. There's too many pastors that have stopped talking about the cross. And they don't talk about hell. They don't warn. And they don't talk about sin. Everything's Mr. Rogers' gospel. And it has no power in it. Faith begins to fill the heart of this thief. And the first thing he preaches, listen, he becomes a preacher. The first thing he preaches is a healthy fear of God. Friends, he's only echoing Jesus who said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. To fear God is to want to be saved out of divine judgment. Do you know that the unbeliever doesn't have that fear of God? Our friends who don't want God, don't fear Him. This is what Paul was saying in Romans. The venom of asps is under their lips. This is the unrepentant criminal. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It ends with there is no fear of God before their eyes. They're hardened. They're unbelieving in this criminal. Listen, he's going to go down swinging. He's not going to fear God. It's what happened at the end of that brutal, bloody dictator, Joseph Stalin's life, who, according to Robbie Zacharias, who heard this from Stalin's daughter, right the moment before he died on his deathbed, he sits straight up, shakes his fist to the heavens, lays back down and dies moments later. Stalin had no fear of God to the very final breath. That's the unbeliever. They've got to be awoken by grace to the reality of divine judgment. And when you are waking up, then the first thing you're going to see is judgment. Listen, this is why C.S. Lewis once wrote in the book, The Great Divorce, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. He's being whimsical, he's being metaphorical, but he says this because, listen, even in the, in the turmoil and the ordeal and the torment of hell, sinners will lock the door from God if it means that the only way out is through putting their faith in Jesus. But it goes on, the sinner, the, the repentant thief, he keeps preaching. And we learn that saving faith admits guilt. Look what he says. And we indeed justly speaking to the other criminal, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's admitting guilt. See, the fear of God, friends, convinces you of personal guilt. It it shows you impending divine judgment. And God opened His eyes to the realization that He is a sinner who deserved judgment. Listen, if somebody is preaching to you a gospel that makes little of the heinous atrocity of sin, don't believe it. Sin is disastrous. It required the death of the Son of God to atone for it. And when a person is, when, when faith rather is present in a person's heart, they're cut to the heart at this realization. And this repentant thief, he didn't tell Jesus of his good works. He didn't, he didn't tell Jesus, Jesus, I had a bad hand dealt to me in life. He didn't do anything to justify himself. He admitted, I'm a sinner. I deserve, I'm getting what I deserve. 
It's what the tax collector showed us when Jesus' story in Luke 18. The tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So saving faith begins with the fear of God. It realizes that we are getting what we deserve. And then all of a sudden, the kindness of God is so brilliant. Saving faith believes in Jesus Christ. Look what he says to the other criminal. But this man, he can't point. But he speaks and he says, this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Now, one of the things I want to remind you, do you notice the utter lack of a formulaic prayer for salvation? Despite the simplicity of what he is saying, it's one of the most eloquent demonstrations of faith you'll ever hear. This man has done nothing wrong because saving faith puts its hope in Jesus Christ. And this repentant criminal, he affirms Jesus is innocent, he's blameless, he's sinless, and the grace of God enables him to see just who it is on the cross next to him. It's the righteous one of God. Friends, when a sinner has the Spirit of God opened their minds to the gospel, they will first see the wrath of God, and then they'll see the guilt of sin, and they're going to then see the glory of Jesus Christ and their hope of forgiveness. And then we see one final point. We see in this story eternal faith. Eternal faith. You know, with this God-birthed recognition, our thief, our thief turns to Christ. Look what he says, the very first word. He's speaking to the criminal, and now he turns to Jesus with his voice, and he says, Jesus, Jesus, which is the name above all names, it means Jehovah saves. What's in the name? Well, in the name of Jesus, there's a whole world of hope and theology. Jehovah saves. And suddenly... All those people that the thief heard mocking Jesus because he couldn't even save himself, now all of a sudden he sees that Jesus will save by dying. Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew and in the Aramaic, in the name of the Savior, remember me, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, that's, friends, that's a prayer. That's a prayer of salvation. It may may not be the prayer you prayed, nor the prayer that I prayed, because there isn't a formula in Scripture for a prayer that you've got to pray. It's the explosion of faith. Do you see divine judgment coming your way? Do you see that you deserve it? Because you've robbed God. And do you see that God in His kindness through Jesus has made a way out of God's judgment? And He holds it out to you. And all you've got to say is, Jesus, please let me have that. Remember me. That's all He prayed. Listen, He knows one thing with an irrefutable knowledge. Nobody survives crucifixion. Nobody. You always die. And sometimes it took days. Only because the Sabbath is coming did they break their legs. 
But sometimes it takes days, but it doesn't matter how long it lingers, you're going to die. That's always the end of crucifixion. And he knew that Jesus was the king and that he was about to take up his kingdom. So he's saying, Jesus, we're going to die when you take up your kingdom. Remember me. And finally, we get to the second statement of Jesus on the cross. You didn't think we'd ever get there, did you? Jesus says, truly. You know what truly means? It means, it's an, it acts like an emphatic, I promise you. Truly works like this. Whenever I know you're not paying attention to me when, you're pre- when I'm preaching, which is often, I'll pause People's heads start popping up. Listen, if you wouldn't be so unfocused, we'd get through these sermons faster. (laughs) So I pause, and if that's not working, I say, listen. And if that doesn't work, I'm getting frustrated by this point. Listen, there's a whole world of thinking that I do while I'm preaching. At this point, I'm going, man, I'm really irritated at that person. Now, I worked hard on this sermon. Would you please listen? And you're not listening, so I come out from behind the lectern and I stand over here because you don't listen very well. I'm just kidding. Just, just an object example, okay? And if that doesn't work, I last resort is this, and that's Southern Baptist style. I never do that. I never do that. But there's ways to emphasize. There's ways to get your attention. And Jesus says, truly, and what he's doing is saying emphatically, I promise you. And what he's about to say to this thief is so mind-blowing that he's got to prepare him to receive it. Here's what he says. I promise you today. Listen, remember I told you that it takes days oftentimes to die on the cross. They didn't know that the chief priests were going to come to Pilate with a request, perform crucifracture, hasten their deaths. They didn't know. Jesus knew. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And he's not going to make, listen, Catholic friends, listen, and I mean this seriously and tenderly, listen, you're not going to make an intermediate stop in purgatory. You're going to go from the cross to paradise. And God's not going to send somebody to baptize you first, and you're not going to be given the last rites of Holy Communion. And I'm not going to ask my mom, who's right there, to come over and be an intermediary between you and my father. Listen, I I love my Catholic friends, but purgatory is not a biblical doctrine. You go from death to life when you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you go from death to death. That's why we've got to declare the gospel, both sides of it, the good and the bad. Today, this very day, you will be with me, listen, in paradise, which is a Persian word for a walled garden. Paradise is a synonym for heaven. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't know if I agree with that. How do you know that? Listen, whenever you don't know something about Scripture, the number one rule is it's somewhere else in Scripture. Scripture always answers Scripture. And you go to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. I know a man, speaking of himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, and I know 
told that when that this man was caught up into paradise. Paradise equals third heaven. And if you're a Jew, you know that you thought of three heavens. Your first heaven was the blue sky above your heads. The second heaven was the starry night sky. And the third heaven was the place where, where Jehovah dwelled and ruled over all creation. And Jesus says, today you will be with me. Listen to your Muslim friends whose primary motivation for paradise is their 72 virgin promise. It's not 72 virgins that you're coming to enjoy. It's me. You're going to be with me in paradise. This is why Charles Spurgeon said that this man who was our Lord's last companion on earth was his first companion at the gates of paradise. This is the first person that the mercy of God touches from the cross. And he was saved at the very end of his life. You know, poet William Camden once wrote a one little, a short little poem that goes like this. Betwixt the stirrup and the ground. Mercy I asked and mercy I found. What he's saying is a man fell off his horse to his death. And on his way there, he asked for mercy and God gave it. Just like that. April 19th, 2008, Sandy's father, Bill, died in a hospice room. I want you to hear this story. It's amazing. A lot of the family was there on that afternoon when it looked as if Bill was no longer breathing. And Sandy said to her cousin, who's a nurse, can you check and see if dad's breathing? And the nurse does, and he's not breathing. And it was at that very moment that they confirmed he's not breathing that the patio doors of that hospice room flew open. I don't even, you can't even make this stuff up. It flew open. And one of her uncles walks over to the door and tries to shut it. He can't shut it. It won't shut. He's pulling and pulling. He can't get it to shut. Until after almost a minute goes by, then it shuts so easily that a child could have shut it. Another one of her uncles was in that room and he says, maybe it was the angels coming to take Bill home. Listen, I don't know if it was the angels, but I do know this, Bill was on his way to paradise. And one moment he was breathing, and the next moment he was breathing better air. Air that can fill better lungs that won't ever hurt again. That's betwixt the stirrup and the ground. And you don't know when you're falling off your horse. You don't know when your last breath is coming. This is why today is the day of your salvation. You can't wait. Because you don't know when that final moment comes. This thief confessed his sin that Jesus is the Savior and King and he asked Jesus, to be with him in eternity. How simple is that? Have you done that? Can you do that? 
And if you've done that, then you're going to be with Jesus one day in paradise and you're going to be singing for eternity, I think, this, the verse that we sang this morning, the dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Listen, the fountain's open for you. And you don't need to know the right words. Just express your faith to Jesus. And you will find mercy. Can you close your eyes for a moment? I'm not going to ask you to come down front. I'm just going to ask for your honesty. And the camera, Jim, if you could turn that off. Simply want your honesty. And I will pray for you at the end. I have to ask this. You're either the repentant thief who has found mercy or you're the unrepentant one that has no fear of God in your eyes. And maybe, maybe the Spirit of God was speaking to you this morning. You'll know if He was. It's a war. You feel hot. You feel scared. Is God speaking to you this morning through the story of this thief and his faith? If He was speaking to you, and if you realize that you are the unrepentant thief and you need to ask Jesus to forgive you, would you simply put your hand up? That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Put it up really high. I see them. Hands up all over the place. Any more? Be honest. I want to give you the moment. I see it. I see those hands. Let me encourage you to do two things. With everybody's eyes closed. I'm going to pray with you. And the words that I say don't need to be your words. God doesn't care what words you use. He's looking at your faith. Do you see divine judgment, the wrath of God? Do you see that you're guilty? Do you see that God says, I love you and I'm willing to save you? If you see that, just ask him to save you. And if that's you, then the first thing you have to do, friends, I'm telling you this from experience, trust me. The first thing you have to do is tell somebody and make your faith public. If you keep it hidden, it will have no power. Find somebody this morning, me or anybody in this church, and let them know what you have prayed this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends, all these hands that have gone up. Lord, you know my heart. I am scared to death that people could sit under my preaching for years and years and years and find themselves before you at the end of time guilty. Lord, I want to preach the truth. Lord, I ask that your grace would open up the eyes of my friends in this church. Let them see the truth. Lord, for all those who raised their hands, Father, just let them cry out from a child to their father who loves them so much, so much that you sent your only son. If there was another way, why would you have put your son on the cross? You sent your son to save them and to give them life. Lord, let them just cry out and ask for it and let them find your mercy as your mercy finds them. 
and give them the courage to tell somebody before they leave today. Make their faith public. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.